Hey, there's somebody's reading um, Zachariah Sitchin's last book of Enki. To the commanding lord, Enlil arrived at the Apsu and settled in a residence near the excavation site. It was then that a group of Anunnaki workers launched an assault on Enugi, the chief mining officer. They set fire to their tools and subsequently approached Enlil's dwelling to express their grievances. Kalkal, the gatekeeper, barred the entrance and summoned Nusku, Enlil's vizier. Nusku, awakening Enlil from his rest, reported, My lord, we are surrounded. The Anunnaki workers are here, protesting against the strenuous labor. Enki and Ninurta were summoned, and Enlil inquired, What is happening? Who instigated this rebellion? In unison, they responded, We did. All of us. Enlil relayed the events to Anu, who swiftly replied, we require the gold. The work cannot cease. Enki contemplated. So gold. The labor is indeed burdensome, as we all know. The rebellion is not against Enlil, but against the work itself. Enugi, the chief mining officer, was released and consulted. He conveyed, Since the heat on Earth intensified, the work has become unbearable, intolerable. Ninurta proposed, let the rebels return to Nibiru, and let other Anunnaki take their place. Enlil turned to Enki and asked, Is it possible to create new tools for the Anunnaki that would alleviate the need for tunnels? Enki responded, Summon my son, Ningishida. I must speak with him. After their conversation, Enki made an announcement. There might be a viable solution. Let us fashion a primitive worker. Lulu shall be its name and let this new being shoulder the burdensome toil of the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki leaders were rendered speechless. Who could have conceived such a solution? Would anyone have ever imagined it? Thus, they summoned Ninma, renowned for her healing and nurturing abilities. Ninma replied, I have never encountered anything like this. All beings descend from a seed. Each being evolves throughout eternity from another. None emerge from nothingness. Enki smiled and said, How right you are, my sister. Then Enki continued, I must reveal a secret of the Abzu. The being we need already exists. We just need to insert our mark on them. We need to imbue them with the essence of the Anunnaki. Let's create a primitive worker. Let us create Lulu, upon whom the tasks of the gods will Lulu. be imposed. There you go. That's where we came from. The Anunnaki listened to Enki's words with great surprise and fascination. Hmm. Who could this mysterious being be? There are creatures in the Abzu, Enki continued. They walk upright on two legs and use their front limbs as arms. possess hands and Early live the animals of the steppes. They consume plants with their mouths and drink water from ditches and lakes. They Seems compete like for territory with other creatures. They do not know how to dress, and their bodies are covered in hair. Their heads are as hairy as that Bonobo. of a lion. <laughs> Enlil was perplexed. He exclaimed, 
No creature like this has ever been observed in Eden. Ninma spoke up. Long ago on the planet Nibiru, our ancestors might have been similar. It is a being, not a creature. It must be fascinating to witness. Enki proposed that everyone gather at the House of Life to meet these beings. He had already captured several of them, confined within cages. Upon seeing the Anunnaki, the beings stirred. They pounded on the cages, snarled, and displayed aggression. Both males and females could be observed. They are like us, Enki said. We come from Nibiru, both male and female. And so are these beings. Ningishida, my son, examined the essence of their creation. It resembles ours. They possess two intertwining serpents. They're talking about when our vital DNA. essence combines with theirs. Our imprint will be upon them. Thus, Serpent. a primitive worker will be created. They will comprehend our instructions and handle our tools. They will undertake the laborious task of excavation. The Anunnaki will find relief. Enlil took a firm stance. Tools are our servants, not other beings. Slavery was abolished on Nibiru long ago. We cannot proceed with this here. You wish to create a creature and bring into existence that which has never been. The act of creation rests solely in the hands of the father of all. Enki responded, they will not be slaves. They will be helpers. This is my plan. Ninma chimed in. The being already exists. The plan is to enhance this being's abilities. Enki concluded. It will not be a new creature. We will fashion them more closely in our own image. With slight modifications it can be achieved. Only a drop of our essence is required. Enlil voiced his concerns. This is a grave matter and I do not approve. It goes against the regulations of planetary travel. It has already been prohibited. Our objective is to obtain gold, not to supplant the father of all. Ninma replied, My brother, the father of all has endowed us with wisdom and understanding. For what purpose did he perfect us if not to make the most of it? We are imbued with the vital essence of wisdom and understanding. It was the creator of all who bestowed this upon us, so that we could utilize it in any manner. Is that not our destined purpose? Is this not our destiny? Ninurta spoke to his mother, Ninma. It was with this bestowed essence that we perfected tools, cars, and ships. We destroy mountains with weapons of terror and heal the skies with gold. Weapons of terror. Let us create new tools with wisdom, not new beings. New tools and no slaves. We will ease the hard work of the Anunnaki, and wherever our understanding takes us, this is our destiny. We cannot prevent the use of the knowledge we possess. Fate surely cannot be changed. From the beginning to the end, it was determined. Is it fate? or luck that brought us to this planet to extract gold from the waters. Apparently, the Anunnaki must work on the excavations. And does this negate the creation of a primitive worker? That, my fellows, is the point. The creation of the primitive worker. 
Is it luck or is it fate? With great doubts, the Anunnaki on Earth decided to consult Anu on Nibiru. A new council was convened, and the elders, sages, and commanders were consulted once more. Just like Star Trek. The discussion was extensive and involved everyone. However, the priority of Nibiru's salvation was paramount. Anu then conveyed the royal decision to the Anunnaki on Earth. Let Nibiru be saved. May the new being be created. Enki asked Ninma to be his helper, and Enugi, the chief officer, warned the Anunnaki in the Abzu that work must continue until the new being is created. Meanwhile, Enki led Ninma to a place of cages among the trees. In the cages, monstrous creatures were trapped. As they observed the hideous ones, Enki explained that the essences of different lives were mixed, and creatures of various species were manipulated through crossing. Enki and Ninma returned to the House of Life, where Ningishzida explained the secrets of the life essence, and how the combination of different essences should be achieved. Ninma said, But the creatures in the cages are strange and monstrous. Indeed they are, replied Enki. But you are here precisely for that, to achieve perfection. Numerous questions puzzled Ninma. How many essences should we gather? Which uterus should give birth? Ninma reflected and reached a conclusion. A smile appeared on her lips. We need the knowledge of someone who has already given birth, and I possess that. Then, together with Ningishida, she studied the sacred formulas encoded in objects of science and civilization, known as Emi. Finally, she turned Emi. to the cages of monstrous creatures and understood that essences are transmitted through the insemination of a male and a female. The two intertwined strands separate and combine to create offspring. Ninma thus grasped what was needed. Let an Anunnaki male impregnate a bipedal female. Enki said, we tried, but it failed. There was no conception. Ninma said, another approach is required to blend the essences. We must not harm the earth. Our essence must be gradually and delicately transmitted through the secret formulas in the ME. Thus, a crystal vessel was used, and an ovule of a biped was fertilized by a seed with the essence of the Anunnaki. The egg was inserted into a bipedal female, and insemination took place, but there was no birth. Just in time, Ninma made a small incision and retrieved the hybrid. It was a living being with a hairy body and the upper part resembling earth creatures while the lower part resembled the Anunnaki. They entrusted the creature to his bipedal mother for care and breastfeeding. The creature grew at an unexpectedly rapid pace. A day on Nibiru equated to a month on the Abzu. The Earth Boy no longer made grunts, but his hands did not adapt to using tools. 
Ninma spoke. We must try again and adjust the blend. Let me experiment with the MEs, object formulas encoded with the sciences. Enki and Ningish Zeta repeated the procedure. Ninma, equipped with the Anunnaki essence in the ME, took a little from one and a little from the other, inseminating them together with the egg of an earthly female in a crystal vessel. This time, there was a timely birth, and the newborn was allowed to grow into a child in his mother's arms. He bore a greater resemblance to the Anunnaki, with a more appealing appearance and hands seemingly suited for tool use. However, they discovered that the new Earth boy had hearing difficulties and failing eyesight. Undeterred, Ninma resumed her work and conducted further experiments with new blends. Several inseminations were performed, but various problems arose. One being had paralyzed feet, another had reproductive organ issues, and yet another had underdeveloped lungs. Enki became disheartened, but Ninma remained resolute in her pursuit of success. Enki, thank y'all for being here. Tap the live. Or tap the screen, share the live. Thank you for all your follows and gifts. Appreciate y'all. I hope you're enjoying your Friday evening listening to the book. Interrupted the attempts and suggested... The problem may lie not in the mixture, ovum, or essence, but in the crystal vessel from Nibiru. Let us employ a vessel made of earthly materials, such as gold and copper. A vessel crafted from clay found in the Abzu. Following Enki's suggestion, Ninma fashioned a vessel from Abzu clay, molding it into a cleansing bath. She carefully combined an earth female's egg with vital essence extracted from Anunnaki blood. Gradually, she directed the essence using the ME formulas and then implanted the fertilized egg into the uterus of the earth female. Conception occurred and they only needed to wait for the anticipated time. At the precise moment, the female went into labor and a boy emerged slowly. Ninma attentively beheld the newborn child and marveled at its perfection. With her hands, she cradled the infant while Enki and Ningish Sita observed the moment. The three rejoiced. Enki declared, Your hands have brought forth success. The baby was then entrusted to his earthly mother for breastfeeding, and over the course of months, he transformed into a boy. Though he struggled to speak, his limbs were well suited for labor. Huh. Enki contemplated the matter and explored all possibilities. He stated, Of all the attempts and exchanges we have made, one factor has remained constant. The fertilized uterus has always belonged to a terrestrial woman. This may be the only obstacle hindering complete success. Ninma and Ningishida exchanged suspicious glances, and Enki continued, The only alternative we have yet to try is an Anunnaki womb. To create a being in our image and likeness, it must develop within an Anunnaki. Wise words, said Ninma. 
perhaps the correct mixture was inserted into the wrong uterus. But who will be the Anunnaki female to receive the insemination and create the primitive worker? Couldn't there be a monster in her womb? Enki said, Let me speak to Damkina, my wife, also known as Ninki. No, interrupted Ninma. I have carefully studied the matter. I've prepared the vessels and mixtures. Let this womb be mine. Let me take that risk. Enki agreed, and he manipulated the mixture in a clay vessel. Touch screen, y'all. Let's get to 75k real quick. Into Ninma's womb, and conception took place. Labor I'm began earlier this. than the nine months on Nibiru but later than Earth's nine months. Enki supported the boy with his hands. He was the image of perfection. Enki gave him a little slap, and the newborn cried. He then handed the baby to Ninma, who lifted him up and exclaimed, My hands made it. My hands made it. My hands has made it. My hands has made it. Ninma <laughs> drew the baby to her bosom and provided the nourishing food of life that flowed from her body. The baby thrived and was observed. Enki saw a mother and her child. It was not Ninma and any other being. The newborn had well-shaped ears, unobstructed eyes, adequate limbs, feet at the bottom, and hands on top. He wasn't hairy like the savages. His hair was dark black, and his skin was smooth. His skin had a dark red tone, and his blood shared the same color. Dark red. His private parts were different from those of the Anunnaki. <laughs> the shape was peculiar, with <laughs> fur covering the front part. Enki <laughs> said, let him be different from us with this front skin hanging from his private parts. Then he continued, Ninma, this is a being, not a creature. Will you name him? Ninma spoke. His name shall be Adamu, meaning like the clay of the earth. Adamu, Adam. made for little Adamu, Adamu, and the Anunnaki discussed in the House of Life. They needed an army of primitive workers, and Adamu was to be the model. He would be treated like a firstborn and protected from labor. He must serve as the mold for future workers. Anunnaki don't have nuts. Ninma suggested that the caretakers of her city, Shurubak, be taken to the House of Life to receive the next inseminations. Seven Anunnaki Shurubak. accepted the task. Ninma's... Enki praised their names, and Ningishida recorded them for remembrance. Ninima, Shuziana, Ninmada, Ninbara, Ninbuk, Musardu and Ninguna. Ninma prepared the seven clay vessels, extracting the eggs from the female bipeds. She then extracted the life essence of Adamu and placed it little by little into the containers. Through a small incision in Adamu's intimate parts, she extracted a drop of his blood, pronouncing, let this be a sign of life. Let us always proclaim that flesh and soul have combined. 
She squeezed the male private parts to draw blood and added a drop to each container. In the clay mixture, terrestrial and Anunnaki essences would unite. Pretty graphic. <laughs> Ninma recited an incantation for the really unity good. of the two essences, one from heaven and one from earth, to be brought together. Ningish Zeta recorded Ninma's words. Fertilized eggs were inserted into the wombs of the Anunnaki females. There was conception, and the births proceeded as scheduled. Seven Earth males were brought into existence and nurtured by their mothers. They were seven flawless primitive workers. Let the procedure be repeated, and seven more primitive workers shall assume the task, said Ningashida. Enki spoke. My son, seven by seven will not be sufficient. We require more Anunnaki heroines for this undertaking. <laughs> Ninma exclaimed, This workload is unbearable. <laughs> Enki suggested, We must create females. Let them know one another intimately, unite as one, and procreate autonomously, enabling them to produce their own offspring. Ningashida needed to modify the ME essence formulas to transition from male to female. Additionally, an Anunnaki womb was necessary to facilitate the creation of females. Ninma, Enki, and Ningish Zida exchanged glances. Enki proclaimed, Allow me to summon Ninki, my wife, Dampina, so that she may conceive this time. Ninki. At the house of life, Ninki became aware of everything that had taken place and her role in it. Agreeing to her responsibilities, Ningish Zida adjusted the ME formulas, fertilized an ovum, and Enki implanted it into his wife's womb. Conception occurred, but no birth transpired when the time was due. Months were counted, and it was decided that Ninma would perform a procedure. With skill, she made a small incision and opened the passage. Light filled the room and the contents of the womb emerged. Everyone was overcome with emotion. It was a female, a newborn girl. Her ears were well formed, her limbs were perfect, and she had hands and feet. She lacked hair and possessed smooth Anunnaki-like skin. Ninma cradled the girl in her hands, gently tapping her to elicit cries, and then handed her to Ninki for nourishment. Ninki declared, She is not a creature, but a being. She bears our image and likeness. Perfection has been achieved. You have provided the blueprint for female workers. What shall her name be? Ninki, with tenderness and emotion, responded, her name shall be Tiamat, which means Mother of Life. She shall be named after the ancient planet from which both Earth and the Moon were created. From the vital essences of her womb, others shall be molded and illuminated. Thus, a multitude of primitive workers shall come into existence. After some time, Ninma extracted the vital essence of Tiamat and placed it into seven vessels crafted from the clay of the Abzu where the eggs of the biped females were already present. She chanted incantations and inserted them into the Anunnaki wombs. In due course, seven females were born. 
Enki declared, let the males and females become acquainted, and may they give birth to diverse primitive workers. Through their own procreation, offspring will beget new offspring. May they grow and develop together, embracing both male and female aspects. Enki, Ninma, Ningish Zeta, and Ninki rejoiced and constructed enclosures, placing them among the trees. Enki continued, let Adamu and Tiamat be relieved of their labor. Send them to the Eden to showcase our success to the rest of the Anunnaki. Adamu and Tiamat were directed to Eridu, Enki's city in the Eden. Thus the Anunnaki came to witness them. Enlil found satisfaction in what he saw, easing his discontent. Ninurta and Ninlil also became acquainted with them. Marduk, Enki's son, arrived from the station of Lamu to meet them. It was a remarkable, splendid, and awe-inspiring creation. You, the creators, crafted this beauty, the Anunnaki acknowledged. With the primitive workers, our days of toil shall come to an end, they all exclaimed. But not everything went as expected. In the Abzu, beings grew, but maturity took a while to occur. Enugi questioned Enki about the primitive workers who were slow to grow and reproduce. The Anunnaki complained about the labor. Ningishida created an observation post where males and females could be seen mating, but there was no conception or birth. Enki explained that a curse had been created by combining two species. Ningishida pondered and proposed that the essences of Adamu and Tiamat be further observed. Let's study the ME matrices to see what could be wrong. In Shurubak, at the House of Healing, the essences were contemplated. There were 22 branches on the Tree of Life. The parts were comparable with determined images and likenesses, but they did not include the ability to procreate. Ningishida showed that there was another essence present in the Anunnaki, one for males and one for females. Without this essence, procreation was not possible. These essences were not present in the initial mold of Adamu and Tiamat. Ninma was worried, and Enki was deeply frustrated. Action was necessary. Information arrived that a new rebellion was being organized by the Anunnaki of the Abzu. Ningishida, an expert in these matters, had an idea. He secluded himself with Enki, Ninma, Adamu, and Tiamat in the House of Healing at Shurubak, causing Enki and Ninma to enter a deep sleep. Then the proceedings began. Ningishida extracted the life essence from Enki's rib. He inserted the extracted essence from Enki into Adamu's rib, and he inserted the life essence from Ninma's rib into Tiamat's rib. After suturing the incisions, Ningishida woke them all up and announced, It's done. I have added the vital essences of the Anunnaki to the Tree of Life. Adamu and Tiamat were sent to the Garden of Eden and freed. Both the male and female became
became aware of their nakedness, and Tiamat covered their private parts to distinguish them from wild animals. Enlil, meanwhile, was walking through the garden when he encountered Adamu and Tiamat. Alarmed by their covered private parts, he summoned Enki to question him. What is this? Why are their private parts covered? Oh, we're sorry. We fucked up when we made them. And, uh, and the, he admitted to Enlil. Their parts are bigger than yours. We didn't want you to be embarrassed, Enlil. And explained that the initial creation failed in this aspect. Enki clarified that Ningishida had repaired the Tree of Life. Enlil was furious. He exclaimed, None of this was my will. We should not act as creators. You said the beings we needed already existed. You said we just needed to put our mark on them. You have put the Anunnaki at risk. You have endangered Ninma and Ninki. You have put the caretakers at the House of Healing in danger. And all of this has been in vain. Your work is a failure. And so, as a final act, they offered these creatures parts of our life essence so that they may be like us in their knowledge of procreation and be bestowed with our life cycles. Enki called Ninma and Ningishida. Ningishida spoke. My lord Enlil, we gave them the knowledge of procreation. The long life branch has not been added to their core tree. Ninma said, what choice did we have, my brother, that it all ended in failure? that Nibiru's fate in destruction be found, or that we make several attempts until Earthlings take over the work through procreation. Out of Eden, Adamu and Tiamat are expelled from the Eden and go to the Abzu. Yankee led Adamu and Tiamat to a garden with trees and allowed them to know each other. Thus, the miracle that Ningish Zeta had worked on became evident. The couple had twins, a boy and a girl. Ninma also observed the creation. The speed of events on Earth was greater than on Nibiru. Before a shar had passed, the newborn beings were already multiplying. That's how Adamu and Tiamat had other sons and daughters, and they began to procreate on their own, significantly increasing the terrestrial population. In the Abzu, the Anunnaki were freed from labor. The primitive workers did not complain about the work, the heat, or the dust, nor did they grumble. They worked diligently and enjoyed their food rations. Gold was being sent to Nibiru, and the hole in the atmosphere was showing considerable signs of improvement. The mission on Earth progressed successfully. Among the Anunnaki, Top the screen, share the line, thank you for the follows and the gifts, appreciate y'all. The and Enlil also had sons and daughters. Although the life cycles originated from Nibiru, time accelerated on Earth causing the children of the Anunnaki to grow more quickly. Ninar and Ningal had twins and named them Inanna and Utu. Thus, the third generation of Earth-born Anunnaki began. New tasks intertwined with old ones, 
and they were all divided among the Anunnaki. Everything had changed. The heat over the earth increased. The white snow zones merged with the water. Vegetation flourished, and wild creatures roamed the land. The rains were stronger, the rivers overflowed, and house repairs became necessary. The shorelines no longer had oceans. Volcanoes spewed fire and brimstone. The ground shuddered, and earthquakes occurred frequently. In the underworld, the place of the white color of snow, the earth rumbled. At the tip of the Abzu, Enki established an observation point and entrusted the world to his son Nergal and his wife Ereshkigal. On Nibruki, Enlil observed the celestial bodies in the heaven-earth link and compared their movements with the Emi tablets. There is a disturbance in the heavens, Enlil said. On Lamu, at the intermediary station, Marta complained to Enki, his father. Strong winds are disruptive and create irritating dust storms. There are inconveniences in the hammered bracelet. Sulfur fell from the sky on Earth. Asteroids approached Earth violently. Flaming fires blazed in the heavens. Darkness overshadowed bright days, and the devastation caused by storms and evil winds became visible. Asteroids. Missiles attacked Earth. Meteors, King asteroids, Lamu, like and Earth faced an unknown calamity. On Nibiru, the sages spoke, but their words did not ease the hearts of their leaders. All that was happening in the heavens, within the family of the sun and the celestial beings, Earth being the seventh, was the selection of their positions. Nibiru approached the dwelling of the sun, having lost its way through the hammered bracelet. That means it got knocked off its this orbit. This marked the beginning of a new celestial battle. Eventually, Nibiru returned to its distant abode in the depths, and the onslaught of rocky projectiles ceased, no longer raining upon Earth and Lamu. During this time, the initial landing had already elapsed 80 shars. Some of the Anunnaki took charge of inspecting the events that had unfolded. Enki then surveyed the foundations of the Earth and concluded that there would be no issues with extracting the vital gold. Ninurta examined the Eden and verified that the landing site remained intact, except for the spilled burning liquids in the northern valleys. Additionally, he discovered sulfuric mists and bitumen. On Lamu, Marduk found a damaged atmosphere and dust storms hindering both quality of life and work. Marduk expressed his desire to return to Earth to his father, Enki. Enlil, in turn, revisited his former plans and reconsidered the cities he had originally intended. He asserted that the intermediary station on Lamu was no longer secure and proposed the construction of a ship port in Eden. We need a place that enables direct travel between Nibiru and Earth without the need for an intermediary station, he stated. However, Ninurta presented a different idea. He suggested that Bad Tabira, the city under his command, would be the most suitable new launch site for the ships. Enlil conveyed these ideas to Anu, and it was agreed that the new departure and landing point would be in Eden. Thus, gold would be transported from Earth to Nibiru, 
while supplies and additional Anunnaki would arrive from Nibiru for work. Enki praised the plan but raised a concern. He pointed out that Earth's atmosphere was more appealing than that of Lamu, which would result in the ships expending greater energy to overcome it. Enki proposed an alternative idea, the construction of an intermediate base on the moon. To investigate this possibility, Enki an intermediate and base on the moon, you get that? Anu consented to surveying the moon before establishing a station in Eden. Enki was thrilled. Is the moon Ian had always moon? captivated him. For several nights, he had observed its cold silver disk, finding it to be an astonishing celestial body. Thus, Enki and Marduk journeyed to Kingu. They circled the moon, studying its craters and abysses, immense scars left by celestial battles. Celestial battles. Upon landing, they discovered that the atmosphere was inhospitable, necessitating the use of their eagle helmets. Eagle helmets! Assessing the conditions, Marduk concluded that the place bore no resemblance to Lamu and was unsuitable for constructing What's an Lamu? intermediary station. Enki intervened. Do not be hasty, my son. Can you not perceive the dance in which the sun, moon, and earth partake? Let us stay here to study and analyze. With our instruments, we can measure and appreciate the craftsmanship of the creator of all. Marduk was persuaded by his father's words. Enki and Marduk made the ship their abode, and they remained there. For one Earth year, three years passed. They measured the movements across the Earth, and calculated the duration of a month. For six Earth years, twelve years around the Sun, they measured the Earth year. They recorded how the two interconnected, causing the lights to disappear. They then turned their attention to the paths of Mumu and Lahamu. Enki explained to Marduk that Lamu, along with the Earth and the Moon, constituted the second region of the Sun. There were six celestials of the lower waters, and six celestials of the upper waters, which lay beyond the hammered bracelet. Anshar and Kishar, Anu and Nuhimud, Gaga and Nibiru. In total, there were twelve. Twelve represented the sun and its family. Marduk asked his father about the recent events. Why were there seven celestials in a row? Enki contemplated the turns around the sun and the great turn around it. He considered the positions of the earth moon and nibiru to avoid descending into the sun he referred to the return as the path of anu father and son watched the stars from the depths enki was fascinated by the groupings and drew the images of 12 constellations from horizon to horizon he did this on the journeys to and from naming the top row of the path of anu as the path of enlil and likewise designing the path that would bear his name. There were 36 constellations of stars located in the three paths. Enki decided to designate them in the position of the Earth when traveling around the sun. Enki pointed out to Marduk the beginning of the cycle, the measurement of celestial time. 
He said, When I arrived on Earth, I named the time leading to the end Pisces. The one that follows, my name, I called it. Marduk remarked, Your wisdom is fascinating, my father, but on Earth and Nibiru, government and knowledge are separate. My son, replied Enki, what are you talking about? What are you missing? I have bestowed all knowledge upon you. In agony, Marduk said, My father, when the primeval workers were created, you called not my mother, but Ninma, who is the mother of Ninurta. And then they called for Ningishida, who is younger than I am. Your wisdom about life and death was shared with them, not me. Enki interjected, My son, you were given the command of the Igigi on Lamu. There, you are the leader. Father, Marduk said, you are the firstborn of Anu, not Enlil. However, he is the legal heir, and this place should rightfully be yours. You were the first to land and founded Eridu. But Eridu falls under Enlil's dominion, and your command has been delegated to the distant Abzu. As for me, I am your firstborn, born of your lawful wife on Nibiru. But now, gold accumulates in the city of Ninurta. The survival of Nibiru rests in your hands, not mine. Upon returning to Earth, what will my role be? Am I destined for doom? Will fame and royalty shape my future? Or will I face humiliation once again? Enki embraced his son on the desolate moon and assured him, What I was deprived of, your future will encompass. My time will align with yours. Following this conversation, new calculations and exchanges of ideas ensued. Enlil, on Earth, felt apprehensive and shared his concerns with Anu. Meanwhile, Enki and Marduk spent countless years on the moon without any sign of their return. What are they up to? Their actions remain a mystery and their intentions unknown, remarked Enlil. During this time, the situation grew worrisome. The Igigi on Lamu were restless and much. agitated. Marduk had distanced himself, and the intermediary station had suffered from dust storms, with no assessment of the damage. Everyone awaited a resolution. Enlil emphasized the necessity of constructing the spaceport in the Eden, while Ninurta advocated for its establishment in Bad Tibira. At that moment, Anu proclaimed his sacred decision. Enki and Marduk will return from the moon. We shall listen to their accounts of their discoveries and then make a decision. The news revealed that the moon was unsuitable, leading Anu to decree the construction of a new spaceport. Enki spoke. Let Marduk assume command then. The Agigi no longer require his leadership. Let Marduk guard the entrance of heaven. This responsibility belongs to Ninurta, Enlil angrily retorted. Anu contemplated the situation, recognizing the rivalries between their sons. He then reached a decision. Neither Enlil nor Enki, neither Ninurta nor Marduk, the third generation of Anunnaki, shall bear the responsibility for the spaceport. You too will be the commander. Let the place be named the Bird City and let Sipar be its designation. Enlil began preparations for establishing the spaceport. 
He observed Nibruki and marked out an equal circle for the new location. Command was entrusted to Utu, the grandson of Enlil, as per Anu's decree, the king of Nibiru. Thus, a new era commenced. Anu graced the inauguration, accompanied by the Igigi of Lamu and the Anunnaki from all corners. Inanna performed songs and dances, and it was a grand celebration. The gold was piled high, and a significant delivery was imminent, bringing forth direct supplies of golden salvation. The end of their arduous work drew near. Anu announced that the efforts on Earth might gradually decrease, and some Anunnaki might return to Nibiru. A few more shards of work, and soon they'll be home, he declared. Marduk did not return to Lahmu, nor did he accompany his father to Eden. He desired to explore all lands in his celestial ship. As a result, Utu was appointed to lead the Igigi, some stationed on Earth and others on Lamu. Everyone worked with great enthusiasm, exerting their final efforts to hasten their return. However, in the Abzu, the Anunnaki did not work as diligently. They expressed concerns that the Earthlings were multiplying and could potentially replace them in their tasks. News of this spread throughout the lands, and quickly the Anunnaki of Eden demanded primitive workers. There were 40 shars during which relief from work in the Abzu was granted, while in Eden there was no respite. While Enki and Enlil engaged in argument, Ninurta made an independent decision and led an armed expedition to the Abzu. In the forests, he captured several earthlings and brought them to Eden. Captured several earthlings and brought them to Eden. Enki was angered, and Enlil was furious. You have disregarded my decision. Thank you for the support, everybody. Tap the screen. Share the live. Thank you for the follows and the gifts. I am Have a good Friday night. Hope you're enjoying the book. Ninurta defended himself. In Eden, the Anunnaki observed with admiration the labor of the Earthlings. These beings were gifted with intelligence and strength, assuming various responsibilities. However, males and females engaged in unrestrained procreation. The Anunnaki were dissatisfied with the available sustenance. People are no still having sex. Enlil's fury intensified. He said for Enki, may you seek salvation, may you find a solution. Enki took pleasure in the proliferation of terrestrial beings, but also held concerns. The Anunnaki distanced themselves from toil, and gradually the earthlings became their servants. For seven shars, the Anunnaki adjusted, but for three shars, fish and food were scarce. Both Anunnaki and Earthlings suffered from hunger. In his heart, Enki devised a plan for a civilized humanity. He meticulously observed and studied the new beings during their activities in rivers and forests, during work, copulation, and rest. Enki shared all his observations with his vizier, Izumut. Then, one day, while sailing in a boat, Enki encountered two striking young women of wild beauty. Izumud encouraged him, saying, Embrace them and get to know them. Enki offered the ladies fruits and berries from the field, and afterward he embraced, acquainted himself with them, and deposited his life-giving fluid into their wombs. Boom, shakalaka. Izumud monitored whether the two would conceive, and indeed they did. Enki
he instructed Isimud, let no one discover what has transpired. In the 93rd Got that screen, y'all. We're so close to 100K. We can get there. were born in Eden. They were nurtured by their mothers and then brought to Enki's dwelling. Isimud conveyed that the two had been discovered among the reeds, thus preserving Enki's secret. Ninki, with affection, took the two children and raised them as her own. The boy was named Adapa, and the girl was named Titi. Ninki imparted knowledge to Titi, while Enki shared everything conceivable with Adapa. Enki confided all his delight to Isimud, proclaiming, I have brought forth civilized mankind. I have brought forth civilized mankind. They will domesticate sheep and cultivate crops. Enki dispatched a message to his brother Enlil, informing him of the emergence of a new kind of being amidst the desert. Enlil personally journeyed from Nibruki to Eridu. Enki explained that these beings were quick learners and possessed the capacity to transmit knowledge and craftsmanship. Bring forth seeds from Nibiru for them to sow. Bring forth sheep from Nibiru to populate the earth. Let us instruct this new class of earthlings in agriculture and herding. The Anunnaki and earthlings shall share the same table. Enlil was amazed. In fact, it was incredible. He asked Izimud to confirm, Did you really find them among the reeds? Enlil shook his head and contemplated everything with fear and astonishment. He decided to send the news to Anu. Anu was astonished. It wasn't new that one species led to another, but he had never heard of anything like this. The sudden appearance of civilized man on earth directly from Adamu. Anu pondered whether large numbers would be needed for sowing and herding. Would they be able to multiply? While the sages of Nibiru contemplated the matter, Adapa and Titi met in Eridu. Conception and birth followed, and Titi gave birth to twin brothers. Anu heard the news and sent seeds and sheep to be raised on earth. He made a decision. Titi should remain in Eridu to nourish and care for the newborns. the earthly one, would be taken to Nibiru. Enlil was not pleased with his father's decision. Who could have thought of such a decision? What would happen when Adapa was taken to Nibiru? He would travel between the sky and the stars and would be endowed with this knowledge. Then, in Nibiru, he would drink from the waters and eat the food of long life. And then, he would become like the Anunnaki. Enki was scared. His face turned dark after Anu's decision. He agreed with Enlil. Who could expect a decision like this? Ninma was with them. She said, The sovereignty of our father Anu cannot be avoided. Enki spoke up. Let's send our young ones to accompany him and see Nibiru with their own eyes. Let Ningishida and Dumuzi be with Adapa to calm and guide him. Ninma agreed. They are our children born on Earth. 
Our generation is forgetting the cycles of Nibiru. Its cycles now follow the earth. Let Enki's two unmarried sons travel to Nibiru. They may find brides there. Thus, a celestial chamber arrived from Nibiru in Sippar. Ilabrat, a vizier of Anu, came out of the ship. I have come to fetch the earthling Adapa, he said. Adapa was called, as well as Titi and the young Cain and Abael. Ilabrat said, It's amazing how much the earthlings resemble us. They certainly have our image and likeness. Enki introduced his sons, Ningishida and Dumuzi, and told Ilabrat that he had selected them to accompany Adapa. Anu will be happy to see his grandchildren, said Ilabrat. Enki called Adapa and gave him instructions. He said, Adapa, you will be taken to Nibiru, the planet where we come from, and there you will be received by Anu, our king. In front of him, bow down. Speak only what is necessary and everything you are asked. Offer brief answers. You will receive new clothes and should wear what is given to you. You will be offered bread that is not found on earth. Do not eat it. It is deadly. You will be offered a chalice with a drink. The drink is deadly. Do not drink it. My children Ningishida and Dumuzi will accompany you. Obey their words and you will live. Then Enki called his sons and offered them instructions as well. You will be received by the king, my father, and should bow down before him. Do not hide from the nobles and princes. You are equal to them. Your mission is to bring Adapa back to earth. Do not allow yourselves to be enchanted by the delights of Nibiru. After greeting his sons, Enki offered Ningashida a secret and sealed tablet. He said, Deliver it to my father, Anu, the king, in secret. Then the three headed to Sipar, to the place of the ships, and greeted Ilabrat, entering the ship that soon departed. Dressed in an eagle helmet, Adapa cowered and screamed in fear. He said, The armless eagle is rising. Ningishida and Dumuzi calmed him down. And then the earth hid in the immense emptiness of the cosmic ocean, and Nibiru appeared in front of it. Upon arrival, they were received with great curiosity. The Anunnaki born on earth, and a being from another world had arrived. In the palace, the nobles formed groups, and in the throne room, princes and counselors were gathered. Ilabrat burst into the hall, followed by Adapa and Enki's two sons. They bowed before Anu. Anu greeted his grandchildren, moved, and with tears in his eyes, he kissed them. Then Dumuzi sat to his right, Ningishida to his left, and then Adapa was introduced to Anu by Ilabrat. Do you understand what we are saying? asked Anu. Ilabrat replied, Certainly Enki taught him. Come here, said Anu. What is your name and occupation? Adapa stood before the king and bowed down. My name is Adapa, servant of Lord Enki. His words caused great astonishment. Anu said, Wonder of wonders achieved on earth. The princes and nobles of the royal hall accompanied him. Let us celebrate then, concluded Anu. Everyone headed to the banquet hall, tables filled with bread and drink. But Adapa did not accept anything offered to him. Anu said, why did you bring this uneducated earthling here to offer him celestial secrets? Anu turned to Adapa. Why do you reject our hospitality? 
Why do you not eat or drink? Adapa said, My teacher, Lord Enki, said, Do not eat or drink anything. How strange, said Anu. It was then that Ningish Sita approached and handed Anu the secret tablet, saying, The answer may be found here. Anu was confused and worried, so he retreated to his private chamber to open the sealed tablet. He inserted the tablet into the explorer, and the message was revealed. Adapa was born from my seed with an earthly woman. Similarly, Titi was conceived by my seed with another earthly woman. They are endowed with wisdom and speech, but not with the long life of Nibiru. He must not eat the bread or drink the drink. Adapa must return to Earth, and his fate must be to live and die there. His descendants will plant and shepherd, and from this will come satiety. Anu was surprised. He did not know whether to laugh or be angry. He called his vizier, Ilabrat, and showed him the message, asking about the rules and what the king should do. Ilabrat explained, Our rules allow for concubines, but there is no clarification regarding interplanetary relations. Ningishida was called to Anu's chamber. Did you know the content of your father's secret message? Anu asked. Ningishida lowered his head in response and said, I did not know, but I can guess. I tested Adapa's life essence, and it corresponds to the seed of my father, Enki. Anu confirmed that the message was true, and ordered Adapa to return to Earth immediately. Anu returned to the hall where the celebrations were taking place, and announced, The welcome shall not be extended. The Earthling shall not eat or drink on our planet. We have already witnessed his amazing abilities. Now, let him return to Earth, and generate descendants. To ensure his safety, Ningishida accompanied Adapa and returned with him, carrying the seeds of Nibiru's cereal crops. Dumuzi remained for one shar, and upon his return, he brought the sheep and the essences of the sheep with him. Everyone heard the king's words, and so Adapa and Ningishida were led to the location of the celestial ships. During the journey, Ningishida explained to Adapa about the gods, the planets, and the names that were offered. He taught him about the months and how the Earth's year was counted. Upon arriving on Earth, Enki awaited them. He told Ningishida that everything had happened as expected, except for Dumuzi's stay on Nibiru. Enlil became suspicious of their immediate return and asked for clarification. Ninma was also called to talk with Enki. That was when Enki revealed to them what had actually happened and the true origin of Adapa. However, he made it clear that he had not broken any rules, but rather ensured satiety. Enlil became enraged. You did not break any rules, but you have cast the fate of the Anunnaki and the Earthlings. It was then that Marduk arrived in Eridu, called by his mother, Ninki. Enki and Ningishida decided to hide the truth from Marduk. Marduk was impressed with Adapa and Titi, and soon became attached to the twins, Kain and Abael. Ningishida will instruct Adapa, let me be the teacher of the boys, said Marduk. Enlil said, let Marduk teach one of them and let Ninurta teach the other. So Ningishida stayed in Eridu to teach Adapa and Titi. He taught them the sciences of writing and numbers. Ninurta took the first of the twins born to Bad Tibira. It was Ninurta who named him Ka-in, the one who makes crops grow in the field. He taught him to dig irrigation canals, sow, harvest, and plow the land with wooden trees. 
Marduk took the other brother, whom he called Abael, the one of the wet meadows. ...to go closer toward the light. We're still listening to this. Sergeant Destenza told John and me thing. that he saw a red-orange aerial light surround John. And suddenly, Binary Sergeant Destenza was on and John Burroughs does not remember what happened. Except that later, Bastinza told John, quote, The light forced me to the ground, and I saw the red-orange light come over you, close quote. And that was the second time in 72 hours that Airman First Class John Burroughs was engulfed in bright light and terahertz radiation from unidentified aerial phenomena. Within a year of the December 1980 Rendlesham Forest light encounters, John Burroughs, only 21 years old, became ill and was diagnosed with a heart murmur, which he did not have when he joined the Air Force at age 18 in 1978. 30 years later, on that anniversary TV production in Woodbridge, none of us, including John Burroughs, expected that within a month of returning to the United States, John Burroughs would become very ill. Throughout 2011 to December 18, 2013, him. he was in and out of hospitals with atrial fibrillation problems in his heart. By December 18, 2013, John had to have life-saving surgery, and the information that saved him came from a CIA medical doctor who knew that the UFO UAP phenomenon emits terahertz frequencies that can manipulate human minds and damage human tissues, including human hearts. This is Linda Moulton Howe. Please stay tuned to my Truth Hunter series on Gaia for more surprises about our universe, this solar system, Britain's and the planet we live on. Kind of on a Truth Hunter binge fest today. But that was we've listened to FBI's UFO proof breaking the mainstream illusion. Ah, the truth on UFO case files with Nick Pope. He's he's isn't he like a Canadian Minister of Defense? Defense Minister. As a member of the British Ministry of Defense, Nick Pope had ooh, access to some what? Jeez. UFO phenomena, much of which remains classified to this day. Today, continues to pursue his passion to bring forward the truth concerning reports of UFOs and alien contact. His numerous years of official and unofficial investigations have given him a unique perspective concerning some of the most famous UFO cases. Cracks open several of them, including Roswell, Rundle Forest, Battle over LA, and the most recently released CIA files in this interview with George Norrie. Beyond Belief, I'm George Norrie. You know, on this program, we seek the truth. That's what we're looking for. We want answers to questions about 
all kinds of things including u f o s on identified flying objects what are they where do they come from our special guest on beyond believe is the ministry of defense in great britain he had the ability to actually look at u f o files no welcome to beyond belief Thank you, George. It's great to be on the show. When you were looking at these files, when you were at the Ministry of Defense, what did you see? I mean, my gosh, was it a huge folder? What, what were they? Oh, lots of folders. I mean, literally thousands of them. The British government is in the process of declassifying and releasing some of this material. And it's quite funny because for years they said, oh, this subject is of very little interest. And it turns out that so far over 60,000 documents have been released. So I think that gives you a sense of the scale of it. And this goes back decades. Now, when you were looking at them, you weren't like Edward Snowden, right? You had the capability of peeking at them, doing whatever you did with them? Well, I was, of course, a, an employee of the British government, the Ministry of Defense. So, I mean, I was uh, uh, working on this quite legitimately. I mean, this, this was my, my job, my day-to-day -day business. I investigated the newly reported cases as they came in, but I was uh, able to access the entire back archive of these files. So uh, as long as I didn't um, inadvertently make anything public, that was uh -huh. fine. I had uh, access all area pass, so to speak. Or make copies for yourself, uh, Nick? No, uh, sadly <laughs> not, though I, it was very tempting given some of the material. Uh, but of course now, with the British government themselves declassifying and releasing some of this material, most of it maybe, uh, it's like a blast from the past for me, seeing some of the case files sure. that I worked on, seeing documents that I wrote, which I thought would never see the light of day. Give me your overview on just what you think this entire field is, based on the files, based on where you are today. Big question. I think that it is 99% noise, but 1% signal. Uh-huh. I, and I think as to what that 1% is, I'm not one of these people who sits here and says, I have got an ultimate answer right. to the entire mystery. Uh, the odd thing, perhaps... And but it is a mystery. It is a genuine mystery. It's, it's not all aircraft lights, weather balloons, um, hoaxes. Uh, the, there is something going on. There is a phenomenon. Could it be extraterrestrial? Absolutely. Could it be something else? Who knows? Uh, I'm one of these people who I'm not afraid to say, I don't know. And that's the irony. People say, but you're in government, you should know. Well, actually, government is, is certainly the British government, sure. which is really, of course, the only one I can talk about with any inside authority. The British government is actually as mystified about some of this as anyone else. Well, we're getting these declassified files now, as you said, and Paul Hellyer, who was the former Canadian defense minister, talks about unidentified flying objects. You, talking about the British files, talk about unidentified flying objects. Here at home in the United States, we're trying to get disclosure as well. And people are frustrated, Nick, because we haven't been able to pierce that shell yet. We haven't been able to get government to come out freely and say, this is what is going on. We know about this. Here are the files. They're not doing that. Be that as it may, 
Hillary Clinton, of course, during the presidential campaign, people thought that if she had gotten elected, we would have had disclosure. There was an initiative called the Clinton Podesta Disclosure Initiative. You were part of that. You looked into that. What did you find? Well, I met John Podesta in June of 2011. Podesta, of course, had been President Obama's chief of staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, He chaired the transition team and he was running Hillary Clinton's uh, presidential campaign. Now, I met him at a private briefing in Washington, D.C., and I gave him an overview of the British government's UFO project. And one thing that he was particularly interested in was the way in which we in the Ministry of Defense had rebranded the phenomenon. We had dropped the phrase UFO and we had replaced it with UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Now, the reason we did that was that we felt there was too much, uh, I call it pop culture baggage uh-huh. associated with the term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. So, uh, now, Podesta was extremely interested in this, and clearly, uh, though I lost sight of, uh, you know, exactly how this played out, I, I didn't uh, take part in subsequent meetings, but I was very interested to see that when Hillary Clinton started talking about this, which was quite extraordinary in, in and of itself, of course, in, in the presidential campaign, she used the same phrase. And I thought, hey, uh-huh. I did that. You got into I, it. I, yeah. you, and uh, she, she, I think it was uh, the Jimmy Kimmel show, mm-hmm. a couple of others, but she, she actually stopped the interviewer and said, you know, there's a new term for this. There's a new name. It's unexplained aerial phenomenon. Unexplained aerial phenomenon, yep, really? Yep, UAP. That's the latest nomenclature. I like the old one. I like UFO. I don't know why. And uh, as I say, that's what I had briefed to Podesta as being the way to get this subject viewed in a more serious, uh, less kind of uh, nuanced way. People were disappointed that in the debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the issue of these UFOs or UAPs did not come up. And they really wanted the candidates to be asked those questions. That was disappointing. It was, and it was also quite surprising. Hillary Clinton had talked about this uh, a lot, and I was surprised. I thought it was not a a particularly smart move because I, I thought, you know, to a whole bunch of people out there, this this might be quite attractive. Oh, yes, I'm going to open the UFO files. I'm going to look into Area 51. If there's something out there, I'm going to disclose it. But to a whole other group of the population, I felt this ran the risk of, of portraying her as, as a, a crazy. And, and, you know, people would say, hey, look, I'm interested in the jobs situation, the economy, the economy uh, wars, tax, yeah, all, this all, all that. I'm not interested in little green men. And I actually thought that Donald Trump might raise it unilaterally, even if a question didn't come from the moderator. He might try and portray Hillary Clinton as some kind of nut job for talking about this. Now, in the end, yes, it was surprising and disappointing that it it didn't come up. There was a lot of lobbying. I mean, um, people said, lobby uh, all, all the moderators, tell them what questions you want. And there was a huge viral campaign to get this question asked, but it never came up. It never happened. Now that Donald Trump is the president, will we get disclosure, in your opinion? Well, 
I think, I, I hear people say all the time, oh, this president is going to be the disclosure president. That president's right. going to be the disclosure. And, and we haven't had that happen. It, it, absolutely not. No, it, since the disclosure movement really first started, and I, I guess you could debate about how far that goes, goes back, back, but we've, we've cycled through a number of presidents, and each time you know, certain people associated with this say, this is the one, and it never happens. I think... As, as I, I think, uh, hopefully an impartial observer on this, that if ever there was a president likely to let the cat out of the bag, uh, Donald Trump is the one. I mean, he, he has the advantage of not being a career politician, not being hooked into the system. And I could just imagine that if somebody briefs him and says, Mr. President, here's the file on, on the aliens, he would just come out and he'll go public. He'll tweet it. <laughs> he'll tweet it. He'll tweet it. Or he'll be at one Aliens of his rallies. Exist. Yeah, he'll he'll be at one of his rallies, and when he needs to pull out some some big point to to maybe um, you know if if he's dealing with some scandal as inevitably presidents do, to be able to pull this out of the bag and say, by the way, aliens. I mean, that's just massive. So if ever there was a president uh, that might do it, this is the one. But will they know? Will these presidents know? I mean, we, we assume John F. Kennedy knew about extraterrestrials. We think Lyndon Johnson might have been told. What about uh, Richard Nixon? We think he might have been told. Reagan, I'm not sure. Carter wanted answers. I'm not sure they told him. I'm not sure they told Bill Clinton. I'm not sure they told the two Bushes. So what about the possibilities that they just won't tell Donald Trump what's going on? Well, there are certainly, of course, tensions already between the intelligence community and, and President, President Trump. Trump. Yes, so uh, it is quite possible that they would take a unilateral decision not to brief him. However, I, I have to say that I, in one sense, I disagree. And I, I know, uh, you, you know, you can list presidents that you think knew and then some that didn't know. My own take is that if... If the U.S. government at official level is privy to this, and, and let's not forget the possibility that this has all been taken outside of government and put in the private sector, sector. to make possible, well, makes congressional oversight more difficult, takes it outside the scope of FOI, which, which is a big thing. Right. But let's assume it is in government. I mean, I think in that circumstance, I believe every president would have to be told, and here's why. Uh, the president is the commander-in-chief, and what if the whole situation suddenly moves from being mysterious or benign mm -hmm. or neutral to serious? To serious? Yes. The president, as commander-in-chief, would have to take instant command decisions on what the response could be. And no president could make those decisions if they were having to be briefed from the very bottom upwards. So I think it, it would be incumbent on the, the whole apparatus of state to make sure the president was pre-briefed on this so that he could make those decisions instantly and from an informed position. Sounds like the movie Independence Day, doesn't it? Well, yes, I, I loved that movie and I, I loved the bit, uh, the, uh, um, you know, the, the surprise on the president's face exactly. when he finds that out. But, but could we really defend ourselves against a hostile extraterrestrial presence? 
I suspect not. I agree. I, I, I think it's one of these... We can only take an anthropocentric view of this phenomenon, but there are one or two assumptions which I think are so fundamental that they are legitimate. And one of those assumptions is that if they come down here, their technology self-evidently is going Huge, to be orders, orders of magnitude above and beyond anything we've got. And, and you know, you, you could say in human history, uh, what if... Uh, we, well, we see the examples all the time, of course, looking back through history, when a less technologically advanced culture meets a more technologically advanced culture. Almost inevitably, it, it ends badly, and certainly there would be no, no possibility in any kind of shooting war. Now you can get into a debate about asymmetrical warfare. But, I mean, we wouldn't be dealing in, in a universe 14 billion years old the statistical chances of our coming across a civilization, say, you know, 100 years ahead of us, are vanishingly small. Far more likely we'll be dealing with civilizations tens, hundreds oh of thousands, God, yeah. millions of years ahead. And what will their technology look like? Well, as Arthur C. Clarke uh, said, it will be indistinguishable from magic. Our CIA, Nick, has released some UFO files albeit some of them are blacked out. But that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Absolutely. 13 million documents, I believe. And a classic example, I suspect, and, and by the way, I haven't, haven't had a chance to read them all yet. No, but, not all of them. No, we knew half of them. Well, I've skimmed them. <laughs> but, are uh, they fascinating? Uh, they are. It's a mixed bag. As with all government files, there are, there are a lot of kind of little more than... Um, letters from members of the public and polite kind of three-line sure. responses. The really interesting stuff is more the policy discussions about what the phenomenon is, what the implications are from an intelligence point of view. But, you know, 13 million documents, I think it's a classic example of the way that governments handle this. They just dump industrial quantities of this information in the public domain. Good or bad reports, right? Good. They're all in there? They're all in there. And it's a classic case of the best place to hide a book is in a library. No one can possibly go through all that. And So you just put it right out there. They, they put it out there so it's hidden in plain sight. And what they do, and I've done this myself with, with the British government's program, and even though I'm retired from the Ministry of Defense, I'm still involved in, in acting as a spokesperson sure. for this campaign. Very often, I get to pick the cases that I talk about to the media. And uh, the government, of course, wants certain things highlighted, and they want certain things de-emphasized. Nick, we are in an amazing time right now. And, and we are in the 70th anniversary of one of the greatest UFO cases in the United States, and that was, of course, Roswell. With the 70th anniversary, people are still talking about this case. Something happened near the town of Roswell, New Mexico. That event, known as the Roswell Incident, has become synonymous with flying saucer crash, alien visitation, government cover-up, or many say a jump to conclusion and gross distortion of the facts. What an amazing case, Nick. Absolutely amazing. So many witnesses. Unfortunately, a lot of them have died by now. But what do you think of that case? 
Well, there's no dispute that something crashed. That's that's the uh, incredible thing about this. Um, people that are not familiar say, oh, well, the military would deny that, wouldn't they? But that's the point. They didn't. In, In fact, the beginning, they said it was a down flying saucer, they, right? They, absolutely. It was the military themselves that put out or caused to be put out a press release. And they used the phrase flying disc. They, they said, we have recovered, you know, there, there had been these so-called flying disc sightings in the U.S. and indeed worldwide. The Foo Fighters. The, the Foo Fighters, but particularly then Kenneth Arnold's um, sighting of nine, I, I think, uh, disc-shaped Prior craft. to Roswell. A absolutely. And so the military said, well, you know this mystery, all these flying discs, we have got one of them. So we, the U.S. Army, as it was at the time, had recovered one of these, these craft. It was even on the radio, local Roswell radio, from that press release. But then the military recanted. Why? Well, within 24 hours, yes, absolutely, there, there was a 180-degree turn. And the military said, we've made a terrible mistake. It was just a weather balloon. Well, um, wait a minute. Hello. <laughs> the 509th Bomb Group, which was based at Roswell, and it was the intelligence officer there, Jesse Marcel, who was involved in the recovery. The 509th Bomb Group was the only atomic bomb-capable squadron anywhere in the world at the time. So it was the elite military unit. These people were the best of the best. And if ever there's a bunch of people less likely to misidentify a weather balloon, which is something they were perfectly familiar with, they were launched all the time Absolutely. in the area, um, it was these people. We both knew the late Jesse Marcel Jr., the son of Jesse Marcel, who carted this and flew this material, these craft, to uh, Wright-Patterson. And he would always tell us that uh, his father told him there was something very unusual here. It was an amazing story. Well, I remember uh, him saying um, that I think he was nine years old at the time, something like that, mm -hmm. and, and with tears in his eyes as he retold the story, he said that his father came back, woke the family up, and said, I won't be able to show, you know, keep this, but I want you to see this because everything that I knew, everything that I believed has changed. Yeah. And he pulls out this, this piece of, it's now kind of called memory metal. Um, incredibly. It and it goes right back to its form, right? Yes. And uh, the family watched with amazement. And uh, the following day, of course, uh, Jesse Marcel Sr. had to take that back uh, to the military. Now, I think that particularly if there was a crash and there's debris, which, which people, mm -hmm. uh, of course, talk about, I think that someone somewhere still has a piece of this. I mean, I think it's human nature. People like souvenirs. People want to hold on to something, particularly if it's a worldview-changing thing. And I've teamed up with the local newspaper, the Roswell Daily Record, uh -huh. and we have a campaign not aimed at the UFO community, but aimed at the citizens of Roswell. And my idea is this. To get somebody to come forward who may get, be alive. Get someone to come forward. But even more than that, 
going back to the idea that people like souvenirs and mementos, uh -huh. I've said to people, and I've written um, an editorial, which I was told was the most viewed editorial in the history of the Roswell yeah, Daily it Record. Was. Yeah, it was. And, well, and I said, search your houses. You know, local people, go into your attics. Somebody has something. Yeah, look at the little box of trinkets on the mantelpiece. Go up and open the, the chest of your father or your grandfather's mm -hmm. um, military service um, records. Go through it. And if you find in there a strange piece of metal, give us a call. Have you changed your views on Russell over the years? Well, I think at first I, I was quite skeptical of this, but I come back to the point that there's no smoke without fire, and an awful lot of these witnesses had nothing to gain, and arguably a heck right. of a lot to lose. They made no money, it was nothing. No, these people weren't speaking out for money. I don't think any of them um, ever Profited got paid more than a taxi fare to a TV studio or something like right. that. But of course the reputational damage that, that sometimes people get from speaking out about this subject, where still there's this unfair perception with large parts of the media and the public that these are crazy people. Uh, so these, these witnesses put a lot on the line by telling their stories. What about the uh, mortician who talked about they asked him for small little caskets? I mean, my God, how do you make something like that up? It's bizarre. I never met him. I think uh, Glenn Dennis. Glenn Dennis. It? Yeah, I, I never met him, but I heard that that story. I mean, again, why would you want child-sized coffins? I mean, again, if there's the slightest chance that any of this is true, it it's no good saying, oh, but this is 70 years old. I, I mean, I've changed my mind on this. Yes, I, I was criticized a few years ago because I, I said, Roswell's dead. I said, 70 years on time to move on. Right. I was wrong. Of course I was wrong. Thinking about it now, the point is that length of time doesn't matter. If there is some smoking gun piece of evidence out there, it doesn't matter whether it comes out 70 years or 69. So I, I freely admit that I was wrong to say Roswell was dead. I think it is in many senses almost ground zero for ufology. Can we realistically go back and investigate a 70-year-old case? There are some things we can't do. I, I'm, I accept the point that, like any cop will tell you, if you don't crack a case maybe within the first 48 hours, your chances of doing so decline rapidly. Uh, the same in the medical community. You'll hear this phrase about the golden hour, I think, they, they use. And... Generally speaking, with the passage of time, um, memories fail, things, recollections uh, are lost, evidence, it, it can't be secured. But I come back to the point that if there is a piece of this memory metal or some other smoking gun piece of evidence, a document, a film, a photograph, uh, whatever it may be, then even though it's difficult to investigate something 70 years on. It's not impossible. I mean, look, historians all the time are uncovering new records, for example, about the First and the Second World War. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't say to those historians, oh, the passage of time makes this a, a pointless pursuit. No, absolutely not. When I was a young boy, Nick, my mother brought home a magazine from Look Magazine. 
that had the story of the Barney and Betty Hill case. John Fuller wrote the book, The Interrupted Journey, but it had to do with this New Hampshire couple that claimed that they were abducted by extraterrestrials. It was an amazing story. I could not put the magazine down. I was just a little kid. I vouched at that, at that moment. I wanted to go into broadcasting to investigate these kinds of stories. I was just fascinated by it. Later on in life, as a 21-year-old radio reporter in Detroit, Michigan, I had the opportunity to interview their psychologist and psychiatrist, Dr. Benjamin Simon. Called him up, and I said, this is George Norrie. I work at WCAR Radio here in Detroit. Can we do this interview? And he said, absolutely, and I recorded it. I can't find the tape, Nick. It's too old. Oh, it was 1971 when I did the interview with him. But I asked him specifically. I said, were they telling you the truth about their abduction case? And we can get into that case in a second with you. And he said, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, they weren't lying. Whatever happened to them, and he hypnotized them both separately, and they both had the same story, which was unusual. He said, whatever happened to them, they believe it to be true. And that was the major story. It's an amazing case. It, it's, yeah, absolutely incredible. I never met Barney, who died, I think, uh, many, many years ago. But I did have the opportunity in the 90s, and I, I think she's now passed, too. But they're, I, they're both dead. Yes, but I had the opportunity to meet Betty Hill. And my goodness, what a down-to-earth, but still sort of feisty character. Well, when you met Betty... Uh, we've got a clip of her that you've got to see, and then we'll talk more about her. Betty Hill was an amazing person. Absolutely. And at that point, it left the top of the mountain, came out over the highway, and stopped in midair directly in front of us, maybe about 50 feet in the sky. So Barney got out with the binoculars in an attempt to identify the craft. And when he looked up, he saw a circular window with a bright light behind it and he saw these men standing behind the window looking down at him and at that point the craft began to descend and he became frightened ran back to the car saying he thought they were trying to capture him so we got in the car and we went speeding down the highway to avoid capture and as we're driving along there's beeping sounds that sounds like something was hitting the trunk of the car, and the car vibrated. And then we drove along for about another 30 miles, when Barney turned off onto a side road. And here was a group of men he'd seen on the craft, standing in the middle of this road, blocking our way. Look at her face, Nick. That woman's not lying. No. Now, you can have a debate about the extent to which her memory might have been Correct. skewed by regression hypnosis, and that's a, a whole other debate. But no, I, I, from that clip and from having met her personally, you know, sat down a, uh, in a restaurant with her, spent the whole evening chatting, I have no doubt, like, like you, that she was telling the truth as she perceived it as to she be. perceived it. That's exactly and, what psychiatrist Benjamin Simon said that she was telling the truth based on what she thinks she saw. Because I wanted him, Nick, at that age. 
uh, as I was interviewing him. I wanted him to tell me they're lying, or I found out in hypnosis that they're making the story up. But he couldn't say that. No, I mean, that would have been a big story for you. You would have uncovered a, a sort of long-running fraud, but, but you didn't. No. And, and uh, I think uh, it, it's a classic case. I mean, one point about it, which I think is, is often overlooked, people are kind of nervous about talking about it for understandable reasons, sure. but Betty was white, Barney was black. Now, for a, a mixed-race couple to put their heads above the parapet, put themselves into the public eye in 1961 uh, in, yeah. in New that Hampshire. Was, that was unheard of. Yeah, that was not something that it, it, you would want to do. You would not want the attention. I, I think they were putting themselves in, a, well, a difficult possibly even dangerous Absolutely. situation. Could have been I mean, a dangerous situation. This was, yeah, very different uh, days. And, and I think that is another reason that, to me, why I say these people were not attention seekers. My goodness, they, they, would, be, they would have been well advised, I think, to, to keep quiet, keep their heads down. I used to think, could this have been some kind of military operation and that the people that they saw standing by the road, weren't extraterrestrials, but military people. And I keep coming back to, no, something dramatic happened to these people in an era where extraterrestrials abducted humans uh, in, in huge numbers, not just Barney and Betty Hill. That seems to have slowed down, slowed down a little bit now, don't you think? The abductions yes, like that? Yes, it, it does. And, and it's quite interesting to speculate why. Does it? I, I think there are three different ideas that come to my mind. Firstly, you, some of the true believers would say, well, um, there was a program of some sort that the extraterrestrials were carrying out, mm -hmm. and now that program is reaching its conclusion. Yeah, they've which got is, their results, they're yeah, done. They've got what they needed, which is kind of interesting and a little bit scary and disconcerting uh, itself, because it makes you wonder, well, when that stage finishes, what's coming next? Exactly. Exactly. If if I was a little bit more skeptical, though, I like would David say... Jacobs. Well, yes, yeah. I think, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and that, that is some deeply scary territory. But if I was being more skeptical, I would say that the three big-name abduction researchers um, in the 80s and the 90s were uh, Dave Jacobs, who you've just mentioned, mm -hmm. Bud Hopkins, John and John Mack. That's right, and he's gone too. Well, and that's my point. I wonder, I wonder, with my skeptical hat on, whether the uh, tragic death of these two figures, of Bud Hopkins and, and um, John Mack, has meant that people don't have really the outlet that, that they used to. They don't have these, these prolific uh, two individuals as spokespeople. So I wonder if people are still having these experiences in the same sorts of numbers, sure. but in the absence of Mac and Hopkins, they don't really have the outlet that they used to. So that's, that's my skeptical theory. I, I think it's slowed down because of vehicles like my radio show, Coast to Coast, I think more people would be calling talking about their abduction cases. I've seen that over the last 14 years, Nick, slow down considerably, too. There's another case I want to talk with you about, which was in your old neck of the woods in, uh, in England. Of course, Rendlesham Forest. As I started to get up off the ground, 
wood formed was the silhouette of a, a triangular craft that was probably about 20 feet in front of me. I was just totally perplexed by it. As I walked up closer to it, I could feel uh, electricity jumping like on my clothing and skin, hair. They look like black glasses, very shiny. But in the, the actual skin of this craft, running through it was uh, different colors. Uh, there would be globs of whatever, blue and orange. I was looking for crew compartments, intake, exhaust. It wasn't aerodynamic. I mean, it had no flaps. It didn't have anything that normal aircraft would have. It's an amazing story, Nick. John Burroughs, former U.S. military officer, he was one of those who was there, actually went up and touched the craft, got sick, I think. What do you think of that story? Well, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston were probably the two that got closest. I think it was uh, uh, Jim who touched the side of the thing. John certainly uh, believes that some health issues that he had were attributable to probably non-ionized radiation. Radiation, um, probably. And, yeah. and, you know, again, skeptics find it easy to dismiss all of this and scoff at it. But a British government document um, called the um, uh, Project Condine Study Report was, it's one of the documents that I mentioned that has been declassified and released. It was an intelligence assessment of the UFO phenomenon, yeah. classified secret UK eyes only. Oh boy. And one of the lines in that study said it might be postulated that the Rendlesham Forest incident was an example of an occasion where witnesses got too close to a UAP uh, mm -hmm. and and uh, were exposed for longer time periods than normal to the UAP radiation. Aha. Well, John Burroughs had uh, an attorney working on a pro bono basis, uh, working with Jim too, um, and the, they'd got nowhere with the VA. But then uh, Pat Frasconia, the the lawyer who had been doing this work went to the VA with this document and said, you denied that uh, my clients were irradiated. Here is a Ministry of Defense intelligence study that might suggest otherwise. Uh -huh. And guess what? They settled instantly. Uh, certainly with John, I think Jim um, uh, has not spoken in public about what his situation is, so I, I don't want to go there. But John, right. with John, they settled in full. What do you think happened there, Nick? Well, they clearly encountered something truly extraordinary. Again, in the forest. In, in the forest, in Rendlesham Forest in December 1980. Some people say extraterrestrial. Others say interdimensional. Some say uh, time travelers from the future. Others say some kind of deep black government or military Secret project. Operation. Yeah. Um, we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that even those of us who looked at this and accessed all the files from within the Ministry of Defense 
found no conventional explanation. So if it was some secret prototype, uh, spy plane or drone, even us with high security clearances in the Ministry of Defense couldn't get access to that explanation, that information, if it was out there, which does suggest maybe it was something else. Nick, one of the most amazing aspects of World War II in the beginning was the Battle of Los Angeles, where they saw some kind of an object up there, shot 2,000 shells against it, heard pinging sounds. It was an amazing story. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. U.S. Army planes quickly took to the dark skies, but whether they contacted the object has not been announced. Army officials say they will not comment until they receive a full report of the action. Although some watchers say they saw airplanes in the air, semi-official sources say they probably were the U.S. Army's pursuit. Several observers say they saw one or more planes spotlighted by 20 or 30 searchlights. The object moved southward, presumably over Huntington Park at the western edge of Los Angeles, and on southward to about Long Beach on the coast. What a story, Nick. And there was incredible paranoia, people thinking the Japanese were coming here. They had sent balloons that, uh, you know, had little bombs on them. But if this were a blimp, it would have been obliterated by the 2,000 shells that they shot there because some of them did hit the object. What do you think happened there? Well, yeah, I can only agree with your assessment. And, uh, of course, that iconic photograph is, is almost the proof of all this. Yeah. The searchlights had this thing, whatever it was, illuminated. Uh, the, the AAA was going up and, and was hitting this thing. So if, if it had been a blimp, a balloon, or even an aircraft from a Japanese carrier, uh, which is, I think, un unlikely, but uh, it, it would have been, as, as you say, shot down, obliterated. Yeah. But whatever this was, and it's interesting that, again, in that clip, we heard that uh, there were references to aircraft in, in the plural scene. And again, of course, at the time, we didn't really have uh, the language to talk about anything else except uh, aircraft and blimps, but nowadays, or perhaps uh, you know, shortly after that, uh, we would have, we would have talked about flying saucers or sure. UFOs and now UAP. But at the time, it was just aircraft and blimps. But uh, you know, people say uh, often, why don't UFOs land on the White House lawn? Maybe that's the answer, because they know that uh, when they come down, we start shooting at them. Well, I suspect, though, Nick, that in this case, we know something that hasn't been revealed to us yet. They, they, if they sent up craft to find this, they shot at this, something happened. I think they know what it is, but they never told us. Again, I think it would require some smoking gun document to come out of an archive yes. somewhere. And, and that's the great thing about archival research. Sometimes some little piece of, of uh, information comes out that totally changes people's uh, attitudes about things. I mean, uh, fairly recently I was reading uh, that an old essay 
written by former Prime Minister Winston Churchill came out, which nobody knew about before, in which he was speculating quite openly about the possibility of alien life. He was a believer. Yes, he was. And uh, there's a couple of other later documents which, which I think uh, pretty much uh, make that point. Uh, there's a famous document in which he asks his scientific advisor, uh, you know, what is the truth? about flying saucers, um, you know, what is going on? Please let me have a, a report. He believed the universe was so vast that the probability was many that we had extraterrestrial life out there. Yes, and Churchill, when, when one looks back now, I, I think uh, Churchill is, is clearly uh, a man who stands, you know, with other iconic figures as somebody ahead of his time in many ways in, in terms of his thinking and his world view. I mean, Churchill knew a thing or he two. Knew. There's one more case I want to talk with you about, Nick, and that had to do with the late police officer, Lonnie Zamora, from Socorro, New Mexico, where he was in his police cruiser and then saw something in the desert which changed his mind forever. On April 24, 1964, an American police officer named Lonnie Zamora spotted a strange object streak through the sky over a highway outside of Socorro, New Mexico. The object was between half a mile to a mile away, shooting off towards the southwest. It left a trail of bluish-orange flames and made a roaring noise as it passed overhead. Curious as to what it was, Officer Zamora followed the object over a steep hill, catching up with it as it lay rested on the summit. What Zamora saw then has never been adequately explained. I love this case. Me too. It, it, it is, and, and unfortunately, Lonnie has passed on, but he left with us an incredible story, didn't he? He did, and, and um, again, about the only place the skeptics have to go with this is, well, maybe he made it up, maybe it was to try and uh, generate some tourism for the town or whatever but people that knew Lonnie Zamora and, and I didn't but I was a straight to, shooter yeah absolutely respected in his local community and in his local church and uh, the last person who would have ever uh, told a lie or played some sort of practical joke that brought down people from Washington which is of course what what happened I mean, there's been speculation, well, maybe the craft was something associated with the embryonic Apollo program. Right. I, thought, I thought maybe it might have been a lunar module lander with a couple astronauts running around on the outside. But I kind of, you know, pooed that away. Well, I think so, yeah. I, I think uh, when you listen to the story about the acceleration that this object was capable of, plus the fact that if that had been the explanation, now the records would be out. They'd be and we'd, we'd know, right. because there's nothing secret now about the early days of the Apollo program. I mean, we tested the lunar module in the desert, but it didn't go up and keep going no. like this did. <laughs> so it's an amazing story. There's another one, one more last one. 1997 in Phoenix, so many people Thousands of people saw what they thought was a huge triangular-shaped object. The first thing that struck me is that they were just in a V-shaped formation. Well, it's at night, and guys wouldn't have been flying in a V-shaped formation, in a VIC. We call it a VIC. So they, they would be in a VIC, and then all of a sudden I realized, wow, I don't see any navigation lights or anti-collision lights. 
So now I'm looking at five lights passing overhead silently at a very slow rate. And it also occurred to me that they were flying too slow to stay in the air if it was an aircraft. There are all kinds of stories, Nick, about what might have been up there, but I still think the most compelling is that there was an object maybe about a mile long, huge, that they saw over the skies of Phoenix. I agree, and certainly I've spoken to many witnesses who saw something that night. Uh, some of those people uh, who I've met when I've been to Phoenix, mm -hmm. and I, I've uh, spoken in in Phoenix. I now live in Tucson, so it's an area I'm very so you're familiar with. Yeah. Yes, and I, I, for the skeptics who say, well, this was flares dropped from aircraft that had come from Davis Monthan Air Force or Base. Chinese lanterns. Yeah, right? uh, over the Barry Goldwater range and things like that. Well, you know, one of the witnesses was the governor himself, Fife Symington. At the time, yeah, and, exactly. And, you know, if if ever there was someone less likely to misidentify flares, it would be a former military pilot like uh, like Fife. Well, you know, he apologized, too. I was on the Larry King show with him, and he admitted he made a mistake because initially when this happened, he had held a news conference and had a person in an alien costume standing next to him, and he made fun of it. And this just goes to show that you guys are entirely too serious. <laughs> a couple of years later, he kind of changed his tune and said, I don't know what this thing was, but I shouldn't have made fun of it. And to me, that was pretty dramatic for him to basically apologize for what he did. Yes, and I think uh, a lot of people were very bitter at that. Uh, yes, as you say, he got his chief of staff to dress up in a kind of alien suit and said, I've... I can now tell people, this was a press conference, I can now tell people that the culprit behind these UFO sightings has been exposed. And out came the chief of staff dressed as an alien and uh, everyone laughed. And, and he said, and I've discussed this with him, he said the reason he did that is he felt he had to do so because his perception as the governor was that the local community was descending into a state of near hysteria right. about this, which again just shows you something about the scale of these sightings. And I tell you, for every witness who's come forward and, and given their story, uh, there are hundreds who haven't. And I've spoken to people who said, Nick, this was so close, I tell you, if I'd thrown a rock up in the air, I would have hit the underside of wow. this thing. Wow. Nick, you have devoted your career to investigating this phenomenon. In your opinion, what are you chasing? Well, we like to label things. I think it's one of the things that we humans do. So we, we kind of get a phenomenon like this, and we, we try and pigeonhole it and say extraterrestrial, interdimensional, intertemporal, whatever theory we, we favor. I can't help but wonder whether, you know, this is just our own. It's, it's like if you see a shadowy figure at the foot of your bed. Right. If, if you're religious, you might think it was an angel or a manifestation of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you are uh, a paranormal investigator, you might think of it as a ghost. If you are a ufologist, you, you might think you are being abducted. What I'm saying is that we interpret this, this through our, our, the lens of our own cultural 
um, background and our own belief system. So we pigeonhole all these things, aliens, ghosts, angels, sure. demons. My theory is that these labels are, are just very anthropocentric attempts to categorize and define something that may be totally beyond our comprehension. That could be. When the dust settles, when the files are read, what will we have? Well, I think we will have, it's what I uh, talk about as sort of, we, we it's, it's a reverse of the normal situation. We'll be able to say what UFOs aren't. In other words, we'll be able to look at all the material in this files and, and we'll say, look, the government itself, governments all around the world have thrown a huge amount of resources at this and still haven't really, I think, managed to define, well, as I say, at least to us, at least to us. What we might not be able to do from all these files is say, ah, that's the answer. And indeed, there may not be a single neat answer to the whole phenomenon. There may be lots of different things going on. But I think what we will be able to say without any doubt is that this is not misidentifications. This is not hoaxes. This is not delusions. Some of it is, of course. But as I always used to say at the Ministry of Defense, the skeptics have to be right every single day. But the believers only have to be right once. That's right. Nick, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you. Welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Norrie, and you know we have given you some incredible programs over the years, but what you're about to see in this program will stun you because of what it is and how it works. Our special guest is Lynn Buchanan. He's with the military. He was a remote viewer. Years later, he decided to continue his remote viewing practice into what is now called controlled remote viewing. Lynn, welcome to Beyond Belief. Well, thank you for inviting me. What an exciting endeavor you have had over the years. Oh, listen, when I went into the military unit and they read me on as to what they really do, I thought it was on candid camera, you know. I thought this was a joke. It was the most exciting, fascinating part of the military I have ever seen in my life. You have got to tell us first of all, what remote viewing is. Now, you and I have talked over the years, not yeah. only mm -hmm. on Coast to Coast, yeah. but we've done a Beyond Belief program before, yeah. but a lot of people want to know exactly what is remote viewing. Okay, basically the military um, took on the project of getting psychic spies, but they didn't want psychics. Uh, and so they went out to Stanford Research Institute they did a study, and they found out that 
a part of your subconscious mind connects with whatever is psychic, whatever psychic is. Yeah. But your subconscious doesn't talk to your conscious mind. So they developed a methodology of interview and report so that your conscious mind can interview your subconscious and report what it says. They taught it for basically psychic spying. The fact is your subconscious knows why you do those things you don't want to do and why you don't do mm -hmm. the thing, you know, and uh, it knows everything about you. And so the um, tools and the methodology works for everything that's in your sub. It knows where your car keys are and Jeez. so on, you know. Did we follow up on what the Soviets were doing first? Is that how this yes, all really started? Uh, we did it as a reaction to what the Soviets were doing. When Hitler lost the war, mm -hmm. Great Britain, France, and the U.S. took all the nuclear scientists, rocket scientists, and all that. He had a huge project. Project Paperclip, right? Yeah. Hitler also had a project called Dr. Grunbaum, Green Tree, which uh, he was fascinated with the um, Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted it. Well, Russia took it. And in the 60s, the um, Soviets were getting our classified information like crazy. One of their people um, defected and uh, brought with him documentation that showed what they were doing with their psychic spies. And everybody here had a laugh about it. But then they read the documents and they said, hey, this works. There's something to this. Yeah. yeah. The spy group is different from the rest of the military. Anything that works, they're going to do it. And so they decided, okay, we're going to find out how to do this. And so uh, they went out to Stanford Research, had them do a study on how this works. And uh, a man named Ingo Swan. You know the guy? God yeah. rest his soul, but he was one of the best. Oh, uh, he was, yeah. Uh, he developed a protocol for the conscious mind to interview the subconscious and report the information back. So when they got the data, yeah. when they were able to start getting information, I mm -hmm. mean, they believed there's something to this, right? They knew there was something to it, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, their first, the first remote viewer was a guy named Joe McMonagle. Mm -hmm. And Fantastic he's still viewer. doing it. He's, he's still, still doing, doing it, it. yeah. Uh -huh. As you are, too. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's teaching it, but he's doing it professionally. So you have since switched now, now that you're out of the military, yeah. mm -hmm. into what is called controlled remote viewing. Well, it what, was, what is that? Okay, it was called coordinate remote viewing. And uh, when it came out to the public, see, they gave us coordinates. They didn't want to tell us what the target was because that would kick in your logic and everything else. So they would say, for example, uh, this is Project 970304, question three, what's the answer? That was it. So using coordinates like that, uh, when it came out to the public, psychics started using coordinates and calling it coordinate remote viewing. Well, it wasn't. So Ingo said, hey, the one word they won't take is controlled. Right. So he called it controlled remote viewing, and that's what it's been called ever since. And now speci specifically, what is that? Okay, uh, that is that you control the remote viewing. As, a, as, a, as opposed to the remote viewing doing it to you? Yeah, and one of the complaints that psychics have is that they're at its mercy. 
Well, in controlled remote viewing, you remote view in a set pattern. You sit down at a set in place. You do a certain procedure. You get the information. You finish your get up, you know, and you're finished. And so it's all under your own control. And uh, and so many people hear controlled remote viewing and they think, oh, the, con the viewer is controlled by right. all these protocols. No, the protocols are there so that the viewing is controlled by, by the viewer. Fantastic. It's an amazing tool. It is. It really is. Yeah. I've practiced it uh, because yeah. of people like you who have yeah. given me some pointers. I haven't taken your course yet. Uh, but I, I want to do that. Yeah, drop but by. It, 